everyone, and welcome back to Random Alien Brain Droppings. Tonight's guest is author, researcher, Anne Druffel. Anne Druffel is somebody that I think everybody in this field probably already knows about, but if you don't, her works are amazing. I am reading one of her books, and the reason why I chose this was the topic, the topic being alien abduction and how to defend yourself. Now, I think that's something that we all would like to hear more about, being as most of us don't feel that this is an option. But according to Anne, that's not the case. So, Anne, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? Thank you. I'm just fine. Thank you. Great. So, I'm really thrilled to have you here tonight and so interested in hearing your history, your story. I mean... You've been doing this for years based on what I've read about you, and you're probably one of the only people I've known who's been working doing this research for as long as you have. So that really leads me to believe that this is something that has been going on most of your life, and possibly as a small child. Is that true? Well, uh, I was a school kid uh, in uh, 1945, and uh, I was coming home on the bus, and I saw in the uh, north northeast a uh, a bright object which was about two to three times the size of a daytime venus this was broad daylight and uh, i couldn't figure out what it was and uh, i got off the bus and i walked backward to my home uh, looking at the thing and uh, i went and got my mother inside the house she came out and looked at it and uh, she uh, she couldn't figure out what it was because it was so bright, a yellow-white, a bright uh, and cohesive, you see. Mm. And um, uh, like uh, daytime Venus is like a star, you know, and it sparkles around, but this did not sparkle. And uh, my my mother uh, was cooking dinner, and uh, she said, well, uh, it may be associated with uh, balloon defenses, because we lived in Long Beach, California, and this was still during the World War II. We were still fighting the, the, uh, with, with the Japanese, you see. And um, uh, I, I knew that there were no balloon defenses in Long Beach, California, but I didn't argue with my mother because she was a person nobody argued with. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> of course. I was very shy at that time. Very shy, and uh, so she went in, and I continued to watch the thing uh, for uh, an hour and a half, mm-hmm. and it moved very slowly toward the north northwest. It was about sixty degrees high off of the horizon, and then suddenly it began to set off what I call parts of itself, tiny, tiny little objects that caught. The, the the daylight uh, the sun you know that was uh, that was still in the west was still broad daylight and uh, and and they they would uh, wouldn't fall down to earth as if this was a balloon breaking up it took the they took varying paths away uh, from the object uh, uh, sixteen to twenty of them and I was so amazed and frightened mm. I was frightened. I ran into the house and said, Mama, come out and see this thing. It's acting as if gravity isn't working right on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know how to explain it. Right. I, I, 
she wouldn't come out. She was cooking dinner. It was 5.30 at night at that time. And uh, this was uh, in uh, either uh, July, uh, June or July, 1945. Wow. And, and it was still broad daylight. And so uh, I was so frightened at what I had seen, which was something I never saw before in my life, uh, that I couldn't even go out and watch it again. And uh, I, you know, we, we, I listened to the radio. We didn't have TV at that time. Uh, the radio and I read part of the newspapers trying to find out if something had been reported about this, but nothing. Wow. And, and so um, uh, for years and years, it was just a mystery to me until uh, Donald E. Kehoe uh, uh, wrote his books, uh, wrote the first books about UFO research, the first objective books about UFO research. And uh, I, uh, uh, so I joined NICAP, which was his organization, uh, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which was, uh, well, it was, it became worldwide. And uh, I became an investigator on UFOs. It's because I uh, finally figured out, well, maybe what I had seen in 1945 was a UFO. Well, it makes sense <laughs> to me. UFO, but nobody, you know, nobody talked about UFOs there then until 1947 when Kenneth Arnold uh, made his uh, report of what he had seen. So that's interesting because I, I recently was thinking again about the event that happened in Culver City back in the same amount of, I think it was, uh, if I'm not incorrect, wasn't that in 1942? Yeah, right after the uh, beginning of World War II. That is correct. Yes. So, again, it, it seems like that was such a, I mean, now that was reported. So I'm very interested that something that happened back around the same time wasn't reported, whereas the Battle of, of Los Angeles that happened over Culver City was in the paper, and, and there were numerous reports. So I wonder why that was. Well, you see, uh, it wasn't only over Los Angeles. Uh, it it uh, over Culver City, uh, City, which is nearby Los Angeles, but it traveled south and came over Long Beach. That's what I thought. Where we were living. And uh, I was a kid, and my mother shoved me under the table because uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the alarms went off. In other words, uh, this was during the war, the beginning of the war, and uh, we had uh, alarms uh, which went off, and we had blackouts, you know, and uh, so I was shoved under the table in case some uh, something up in the sky was going to bomb us because uh, we had cannon a huge cannon in nearby Signal Hill, which was about a mile and a half uh, north of our home in Long Beach, California. And we heard those cannon roar for about an hour and a half, and I was just so frightened that I just clung to the the, the leg of the table <sighs> and I didn't know what to do, you know, uh, my, my my sister Teresa, who was two years older than I was, was a little bit less shy, and she'd get from up under the table and go out and, you know, with my dad and my mom and see what was happening. But they'd shove her back, you know. But I hung to that table uh, for an hour and a half, and then finally 
the uh, the cannon stopped, um, and uh, the the blackout, you know, um, was uh, ended. And uh, my mother tried to uh, pull me out from under the table. I was still, I was still clinging to the leg of the table, and she finally uh, realized that the only way she could get me out was to give me my first glass of wine. <laughs> and and she, she brought a, a half a glass of wine and <laughs> said, drink this, Anna. Everything's all right. My, my name was Anna at that time. Drink this, Anna. Everything's all right. The the cannon has stopped. The thing that was in the sky is gone. And, and so I drank, you know, a little bit of the wine. And somehow it uh, it relieved my fear and my anxiety, whatever it was, I've never experienced anything like that in my life, and never since. Wow. But uh, I was able to come out from under the table and go to bed. Wow, that's really interesting. The, the whole scenario that is so colorful, I mean, I picture myself being there because I lived in Pasadena, California in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to uh, your other book, The Tahunk Canyon Incidents, or contacts, I'm sorry, but um, I, when I lived in Pasadena, we had those sirens, and I heard them on a every Saturday, and they would just go off at random, and they were the air raid sirens that. Yes, I think that you're describing as well as as alarm. Yes, they were they were the air raid sirens. Right. In other words, uh, put out all your lights, everybody. You know, uh, uh, there's a, there's a, an apparent uh, attack coming from uh, Japan, mm-hmm. is what they thought it was, that they saw these objects uh, high in the sky, and and the, in Los Angeles, Culver City, Long Beach, uh, they, they were shooting at them. But none of the shots from these huge cannons that we had uh, would reach the, the, uh, the objects. I mean, they would go straight toward them and then be somehow pushed away mm-hmm. uh whatever it was which I came to we came to think that it possibly was a UFO right to see scouting out the earth because the war uh you know was still on mm-hmm. the war had just begun yes yes uh but uh nobody was ever able to prove that they were UFOs but they certainly weren't uh, uh ships or or planes from Japan Right. Uh, intending to bomb us. Right. Or, or, or they, they would no have. harm to us. They did no harm to us except frighten us out right. of our wits. <laughs> right. To see what we would do. Maybe to see just how uh, much we, you know, how much power we had in, in destroying something, you know, of that size, which obviously we did not. Very uh, possible, yes. You know, and um, my mother, my mother's from Denmark, and she... When we heard those air raid sirens in the 60s, you know, she was in Denmark during the war and heard those sirens on a regular basis, obviously, when she was a child. So coming to America and then having to go through that all over again, just as a precautionary measure, these went off. Oh, she my would, word. Yes. So she would grab us. You know, but nothing was going on. But it was still that innate fear that was set inside of her as a child. You know, that yeah. you went through, for example, if you heard that again now, it would probably bring that, that same memory. Well, I'm sure it would. I, well, I never lost the memory. <laughs> no, of course not, and you never will. Uh-huh. So 
I also wanted to talk talking about the um, that area and being as you lived very near Wright area to Pasadena, California, in Tonga Canyon or thereabouts, and uh, you wrote a book about a situation and it was called uh, the Tonga Canyon Contacts, and that book was brought by, to my attention by someone else. Um, he was actually very impressed with that those incidents because it had to do with the alien abduction scenario. And could you tell us a little bit about that book and why you uh, decided to write about it? I had joined the UFO research field in 1957, and uh, up until 19, around 1972, the, the cases that we in, investigated were all cases of things seen in the sky, uh, you know, or maybe landed on the earth, uh, but uh, not with any creatures coming out to, you know, to uh, enter our homes. It was all a physical UFO reports. And uh, we investigated those from 1957. And then in 1972, suddenly uh, the field changed and we began to get uh, reports of abductions from creatures which were assumed to be from UFOs who were harassing uh, um, human beings in their own homes and actually taking them up into their ships and harassing them uh, even more aboard the ships. In other words, abductions. And uh, we we all uh, accepted abductions as, you know, a part of the physical UFO research field, and uh, we studied them. And... Uh, in around 1975, I got uh, five cases of uh, abductees from Tahunga Canyon, con uh, from Tahunga Canyon, which was um, I was living in Los Angeles at that time, and the Tahunga Canyon was about oh I should say maybe eight miles north northeast of of uh, where I lived in Los Angeles, and it was a very very uh, a, a private place. In other words, people lived in little cabins, you know. Mm -hmm. the, 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 there were no cities there. The, Tahunga, of course, was a city. But above, uh, in Tahunga Canyon, people lived in little cabins, little houses, all by themselves, you know. Uh, knew their neighbors, you know, but... Uh, uh, they 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 lived by themselves. They were an unusual type of person that liked privacy. You see, mm -hmm. uh, not to live in the middle of a city. And so, uh, uh, five cases of um, of abductees came to my uh, attention from Tahunga Canyon, and uh, I studied them for maybe about five, six, seven years. Wow. And um, they. They were uh, remarkable, five women, five young women, and uh, wonderful people, just, you know, uh, uh, honest, productive individuals. And uh, you had to believe what they were saying, even though what they were describing were abductions or um, entry of, uh, of UFO beings into their home and abducting them uh, in their own homes or taking them up into what they uh, perceived as ships. Mm. So uh, this was the 
the first book that I was privileged to write in the field, the first book I was privileged to write ever. And uh, a uh, parapsychologist called D. Scott Rogo, who was a remarkable, remarkable researcher and had written about 20 books himself, contacted me and said, uh, would you like to co-author with me a book about the Tahunga Canyon contacts? And I said, sure. <laughs> so we wrote the book. That's great. And uh, But uh, dur- during the writing of the book, it was apparent that three of the five young women described the fact that they were able to fend off or resist the creatures and get them to go away and not bother them anymore. And uh, this, to me, by 1989, uh, the, 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 the Tahunga Canyon, uh, Canyon Contact was first published in 1980 by... Uh, a prominent New York publisher. And then uh, by 1989, I had become very, very curious about the three uh, young women who were able to fend off the creatures. And I began to think, maybe these creatures are not purely physical. Uh, if if young women can fend them off, tell them to go away, you know, uh, um, jump out of their beds and, uh, you know, hit them <laughs> and right. things like that and have them disappear through the wall. Um, I, I began to wonder, uh, perhaps abductions was a different phenomenon than a physical UFO uh, sightings and the perceptions of physical U, uh, UFO beings from physical UFO craft you see. Mm-hmm. And I began to study. I studied for five to six years uh, the, and found out that down through the millennia in every culture in the entire world there have been harassing interdimensional creatures that, that uh, contact human beings in altered states of consciousness. Now mostly dreams uh, I mean uh, not dreams uh, mostly in sleep, in an altered state of consciousness that we quite don't understand yet. But it's not dreams, it's not hallucinations. It's uh, an altered state of consciousness in which real events happen, but in an interdimensional form, you see. Mm-hmm. And so uh, by 1998, I wrote How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction, because by that time, I had 71 um, uh, abductions, ab- abductees who were able to fend off the creatures. Wow. A- and uh, I, I, uh, I perceived that about 20 to 25% of my entire base of hundreds of abduction cases were able to fend off the creatures and get them to go away, you see. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this is what inspired me to write How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. Well, that's interesting. And I, again, like I said before, I, I had never heard of that before. And, it, it, you know, I myself am an experiencer and have been since I was a child. And I, I start thinking about being a child. And obviously when you're that young, 
we don't really have the skills or the mindset to do that. And so we're almost, uh, as children, willing participants in this situation, in this experience. But, but as we get older, I think that we obviously acquire the skills needed to, you know, recognize when something is a threat, per se. Um, I think children are a lot more curious, and they might be a little bit more inviting for a being to occupy our personal space. You know, not necessarily a physical being, but like you're saying, like a, even a conscious being. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I think you're very true. Uh, you're very real because uh, uh, children do not have the ability to uh, fight off creatures. But some some uh, children who ha- have had these experiences are able to tell their parents what's going on. A lot of them don't tell their parents mm-hmm. because they don't know how to express it. But the ones that do tell their parents, the parents can um, can help fend off the creatures. There's uh, some cases in my book, How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction, in, in which parents have helped children fend the, the creatures off. Well, that, that would be really great if the parents would believe the child. I was not actually able to have, you know, such a positive response to... Um, my situations because my parents thought I was just dreaming or that I was imagining yes. things and, and so they didn't have the skills or the education about these things to properly assess the situation that would be able to help me in a, in a, in a way where I could send them off as a child, you know, or even be involved in, in the whole act doing so. So yes. it, it's great well, now. Most I think children who have experiences like that do not have the parents who believe that something real is going on yeah. and who, you know, uh, help them. Yeah, so maybe now this is why we need to educate those out there who might be listening to this show, that if they do have a child that does come to them with these stories that seem so crazy or having these elaborate dreams, mm-hmm. maybe to listen to them a little bit harder and maybe take it for what it's worth and say, hey, maybe something really is happening you know, children talk about ghosts, they talk about having imaginary playmates, and a lot of times I've, I've found that parents just brush it off as nonsense or what have you. Mine did, and so I just lived with it and lived in fear my whole childhood. Mm-hmm. And not until when I was a lot older did I realize that, okay, these things are real, and those things that did happen to me were real. They weren't my imagination. They weren't dreams. Mm-hmm. And... I, I'm sorry? I say they are not dreams. Oh, I, well, I know that now. <laughs> or imagination. That they are real in an altered state of consciousness. Right. So then I was reading the book on how to defend yourself against alien abduction, which is amazing. And I wish I had read it sooner, obviously. But I was reading about one of the gals, um, her experience, where she was saying that she became a lot more self-confident um, in her own personal life about just who she was as a person. And she almost felt that her self-confidence was actually one thing that helped her fend off these intruders. Yes, and an abductee who can fend off these creatures uh, has to be a long-minded individual, uh, confident of their own rights to privacy. In other words, they have the creature that they see has no right to be 
uh, offending them or uh, contacting them uh, if they don't want them. And uh, strong-minded, self-confident individuals are the ones that are able to resist and fend off the creatures. Uh, there are other abductees who unfortunately uh, are not strong-minded again uh, enough, and uh, uh, some try but can't do it. Others think, well, I, there's nothing I can do. You know, this is a an alien coming from an alien craft. <laughs> right. What can I do, you know? Right, right. But one thing that I thought was interesting is that she also said that she felt the texture of the creature on her fingertips as satiny. And so that that whole sensation of, of actually having a feeling of something that was tangible. So it, made, it makes it kind of hard to discern what's real and what's really a dream when you actually are feeling the texture of something so so real. Like a, it's not a dream. It's more like a reality. So I, I can see where it might be hard to discern between the conscious uh, energy being that might be coming to you or a physical entity per se. Yes, if you can feel the temperature of of one of these uh, creatures coming into your room, uh, or or you know when you're if you're aboard the ship with them, you can feel them. Uh, that there that is uh, part of an interdimensional uh, event where you can actually detect them as physical in an interdimensional field. You see. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. But I also wanted to touch base with you in regards to Dr. James McDonald. And you did write a book about him called Firestorm. And I thought it sounded like a really, really great story to share with our listeners. So could you tell us a little bit about him and how you became involved in that project? Oh, well, uh, the, the book, you know, there are many books that are called Firestorm. Uh, but mine is Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO science, you see, and, and just so they know the, the, the whole title of it. And uh, he was the most influential scientist who ever entered publicly the UFO research field. Uh, he, he entered into it, well, it was uh, by, by 1966, but uh, before that he had become interested in UFO sightings around uh, the um, the city of Tucson, and he was a um, a professional. I mean, you know, as a scientist, he was a climatologist and a, and a meteorologist, and he had helped establish the Institute of Atmospheric Physics on the campus of the University of Tucson. So he was a well known, well known, reputable, well known scientist all over the world, and uh, he had, you know. He had written uh, wonderful papers about uh, climatology and meteorology, even back in the 1950s. <laughs> so um, uh, he he became um, he entered the public UFO research field in 1966 when I was a member of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which was NICAP. Mm -hmm. You see, that was uh, prior to MUFON and QFOS, and um, uh, it was uh, directed by Dr. Donald E. Kehoe, and uh, he, um, he, he figured that NICAP was the most objective private uh, UFO research organization that existed, 
and so he joined us, you see, as a yeah. member. <laughs> and of a member of the board and everything. And uh, all, you see, he would go uh, into different countries on uh, uh, parts of his own work in climatology and meteorology. And whenever he was in California, uh, he would, he would, on his own time, he would come and meet with our NICAP subcommittee in Los Angeles, you see. Mm -hmm. There were about, uh, there were about, uh, 12 of us. But whenever he came to one of our meetings, we called it a party. And uh, it was a, a grand event because uh, we would have more than 30 people, including about 12 scientists who were very, very secretly involved in UFO research with NICAP, with, you know, and with us. Wow. And so uh, that's how I met him. And I was uh, uh, just about the youngest member of the uh, NICAP subcommittee, and uh, I was awed at this man. And I would sit there, you know, and say nothing, and uh, the scientists would be asking questions, and the older people in the NICAP group would be asking questions, and I would be there, you know, just listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, he did he did uh, assist me in a couple of cases that I was working on. I, I finally lost part of my shyness during the five years that he was with us. And uh, he helped me with the Yorba Linda um, uh, a photograph and uh, the, uh, a couple of other uh, cases that I was working on, uh, you know, for, for the subcommittee because I was an active investigator for the subcommittee. Wow. So he basically would look at the photographs and, and analyze them for you and, and tell you what he thought about their authenticity? Well, no, he had no way of analyzing photographs. Oh, okay. But he he would just give his opinion, you know, as to what uh, what was uh, uh, about the cases that I was uh, working on. But he did he did uh, actively investigate the the Heflin photos, which were taken on uh, uh, the beginning of August 1965 by a very reputable man called Rex Heflin. I suppose that you know about the Heflin photos, and there there were four of them and uh, taken within about two minutes. And uh, he was just intrigued with the Heflin photos. But, uh, and he thought that the first three photos were most probably uh, evidential of what we call UFOs, that they were unidentified objects. But the fourth photo puzzled him and uh because it uh, it involved uh, clouds that were not seen in the first three photos you see he thought well maybe the fourth photo was taken at another time and it did Rex Heflin say well uh, he was take he took that at the same time but um but he did accept the first three Heflin photos as most probably genuine and he was the first scientist a most reputable scientist who accepted the Heflin photos, and this was very influential for us. Wow. And, uh, and of course, uh, years later, uh, about uh, three decades later, we did solve the problem of why there were clouds visible in the fourth photo that weren't visible in the, in the first three. I mean, I, I don't know if you want me to go into that. I would love to hear what you think about that. 
Oh, well, the first uh, the first three photos were taken by Rex Heflin, who was a, 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 a traffic engineer uh, on the uh, on the highways, you know, the, the freeways of uh, Orange County, uh, which is uh, south of uh, Los Angeles County, you see, in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was broad daylight, and he was sitting in his car, uh, ready to take a picture of a. Um, of a ray of a of a uh, roadside sign that was being hidden by branches, you see, because he wanted someone to come out and and cut the branches so that this roadside sign, I think it was a stop sign, would be visible to people using that road. And all of a sudden, this object flew over his truck, and he was in the truck ready to take the photo uh, of this uh, of this roadside sign, and instead. He snapped a picture through the passenger side window of the object, and it was a most fantastic thing. It was a a classic disc with a a black circle around the the uh, edge of it, and it had a dome and, and some uh, you know some sort of uh, things coming uh, from the bottom uh, you know as part of the disc, and he was astounded. And as it went further to the northeast, he he snapped two more pictures in just, you know, just a matter of seconds as it just flipped off. But both of those pictures show um, details of the disc. And then it showed, the third picture showed it come, uh, a sort of a black cloud coming off the object as it disappeared into the northeast. Wow. And so he, the cloud remained in the sky, uh, perfectly, perfectly, uh, you know, it, it wasn't just being blown about by the wind. It was uh, cohesive. It was a cohesive cloud, uh, a, a black ring of smoke. Wow. And so he, he uh, traveled in his truck about a mile and a half north up the freeway or up the up the highway at that time there the freeway was not there and he got out of his truck and took the fourth photo of the ring still in the sky and um it was uh it was a cloudy day that day but because the two the three first three pictures were taken from inside his truck uh the uh the uh uh, the camera he used was a phenomenal thing. Uh, it, you know, that, that's the way that, uh, highway engineers would, would, uh, would have the most fantastic cameras that were available at that time. Mm-hmm. And it did not show the clouds because of the, I can't, I can't think of what, you know, precisely why he, why the, the pictures didn't see the clouds that were visible to him in the sky. But then when he got out of his truck and took the fourth photo, within two two minutes of the first photo, that, you know, the clouds showed in the sky because of the fact that he was no longer in his truck using this uh, this camera. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've written articles about that, and it's part of, it's a, uh, it's uh, a, one of the chapters of Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science, and is that uh, the Heflin photos have been studied and restudied and are still being studied by a prominent scientist. <laughs> wow.
in a, <laughs> All these years in later, a, in a, wow. university uh, nearby. I don't want to use it. <laughs> and uh, it's still being studied, and they are considered probably the most genuine photos of a unidentified craft. Now, you do you see. have those photos on your website? Oh, yes. Oh, great. I'm, I'm sure they they are. Uh, are they? I, uh, I, I'm not quite sure, but I, I will check it out. And for those of you out there who would like to look at Anne's website, just go to annedruffle.com. That's A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. And she's got plenty of articles, and, and especially uh, with this extensive article with uh, James McDonald. So in that uh, section, you might actually be able to find those photographs. Well, in in an article that was written and published in a scientifically uh, refereed journal by uh, two two scientists and myself, the the photos are uh, are in there, and it's uh, it's in the part of my article section about UFO photos, and it, it says uh, it says Heflin, perfect. And it's from a journal of uh, I can't remember the name of the journal. Uh, but anyway, it's, it was a scientifically uh, referee journal <laughs> that, that was in, and they can see the pictures and uh, and the most recent, uh, up to about uh, six years ago, the most recent studies that were made of them, and uh, they're they're still being studied by one of the scientists who wrote that article with me. Well, it was called a paper. Okay. Uh, it, um, uh, who wrote that article, uh, paper with me. Right. So then after you joined forces with James on a couple of projects, what happened after that? I mean, obviously he was still in Arizona, and he started speaking about these things publicly then. Is that correct? Well, you see, that was only one of the none of the uh, uh, the uh, UFO sightings that he was interested in. He went. He went into Australia. He went into France. He went into Britain. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, wherever he went, he would contact the groups of NICAP subcommittees in that area or the other uh, objective groups of uh, UFO uh, private UFO researchers. And he he was the first scientist to bring out the idea of UFOs in public to the scientific community. And he he advised the scientific community that UFOs were a serious phenomenon that was being badly neglected by the scientific community. And he had he had uh, was giving hundreds of talks to scientific conferences, symposia, and other scientific groups, and they were listening to him. And they were uh, scientists were beginning to study UFO. Uh, UFOs on their own, you see. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, in 1971, he he uh, McDonald was found dead in the desert outside Tucson. UFO uh, shot to death. What? And uh, we were just absolutely. I can't describe uh, how we felt the loss of McDonald in that way. And uh, from things that he had told us and things we knew, uh, we knew that the government uh, might be scouting him out 
for mm. part of the government scouting him out, seeing what he was learning about UFOs that they didn't want him to know, you see. Mm. But he was very, very close to getting the answer. And this is what he told Dr. Robert Wood, that who's well known in the field, uh, two, two weeks before he was found dead in the desert, that he said, Bob, I'm close to getting the answer, and I will let you know uh, in a few weeks. And so uh, he he had uh, he had colleagues uh, in the military and the uh, government uh, fields, you see, who gave who would give him information privately, so that he would not use their name, but the information where he could scout out more information about what the government might know about UFOs. And uh, the, so the, uh, most of the government of the uh, UFO research field at that time, the private UFO research field, felt that uh, the government might have had something to do with his death. Well, it really sounds like it, doesn't it? I mean... Uh, it did to us. Mm. Uh, but uh, according to... Uh, uh, According to his wife and his colleagues at the University of, of Tucson, that I, uh, you know, I, I took five, six years uh, writing uh, and interviewing people, uh, and finally had the book published. They they felt that uh, he was was in a simple depression caused by family problems, and so I put both hypotheses in the book because I respect Betsy McDonald, his widow, so much. She's so wonderful. She helped me write that book. So do you feel, I mean, I'm, I'm getting a sense now of there is such a huge sense of responsibility when it comes to uh, doing this research in so many ways because there's so much pressure in, um, especially with somebody of his stature, and the title that he held and, and being viewed by his peers as maybe not being altogether there. <laughs> Obviously, when you're dealing with something that's um, part of this phenomenon, we get a lot of stares. And I'm sure you've had your... Just the last few months of his life where, where uh, he, uh, he, was, uh, he, he did show some signs of depression, but he, he came, you know, he'd come out of it. <laughs> but that... that, that he wasn't depressed all his time, no. Right. No, just uh, the last uh, about two months. Well, you know, like I said, like I said, you know, the stress involved in in carrying—it's almost like you carry the weight of of knowing um, the bigger picture or knowing that there's more than this, and the frustration of being able to present it properly—that it's accepted as a reality—that's as frustrating as anything, right there. But then again, professionally. Uh, we have seen this time and time again with other researchers where it might uh, cause them to lose their jobs, cause them to go into a depression, you know, drug alcohol abuse, what have you, um, hardship at home. I, I can see, you know, I look at other people who have had untimely deaths. And, and you do tend to wonder a little bit about, you know, if there was something else involved uh, with them leaving a little bit too early. Well, we know a lot about what was happening uh, with Jim because he would he would tell us what was happening to him and uh, uh he was being followed by cars without license plates mm. all over Tucson 
and uh, these these things uh, these cars had stabilizing bars in the back of them, which meant that they were law enforcement cars of some kind, hmm. but without license plates, he never knew who was in them, but they would follow him all around Tucson and even sit in front of his uh, of his um, house you see and uh, at that time, the CIA had developed technology. Uh, I can't I can't remember the exact name, but it is something like MK Ultra mm-hmm. uh, technology, where they could, um, uh, from afar, hypnotize a person and send them into depression or uh, do other things with their minds that the person would not be aware of. You see, and. Uh, uh, we know about this. We yes, know we about cars that followed him, and um, other things were happening to him too. Uh, that that's all in the book. Yeah, so, I've uh, I've heard a lot about that. About the things that the military might be involved in. And, and at this point, I'm I'm having to say that I believe that it is a reality as far as mind control and and being able yeah. to do remote viewing and and things as such um, that do interfere with people who are on to something per se and you know yes. as, as skeptical as it, it you know we might be about a lot of things I think that we need to be a little bit more open about the possibilities of the things that we don't really quote unquote have all the answers to but that are there yes well the the entire hypothesis of you know the fact that he was uh, might might have been brought into depression uh, uh, is in is in the book. Wow, and, uh, sounds quite fascinating. So then, after he passed away, obviously kept in touch with his his widow. So whatever happened with all of his works? Oh yes, uh, he. You see, uh, whenever he would give a talk, these hundreds of talks that that he gave before scientific conferences and, and symposia, he would uh, send around an entire paper of the entire talk to all of the members of the UFO research field, you see. So we have all of those, and and they were all in his archives, of course. Mm-hmm. He had all of his books, all of his the, the other articles that he, that he wrote about uh, about UFOs, uh, and uh, it was uh, it was um, all of these things were kept. In the, the family home, in the McDonald home in Tucson, Arizona, in what they called the UFO room, and they sat there from 1971 when he died until uh, I began to research this out to to write to write the book. This was in the um, in the uh, early 90s. I first I first began this, and. Uh, uh, I had met uh, Betsy Betsy McDonald, his widow, uh, before, uh, but she was so gracious, and uh, she she let me use the uh, the UFO room <laughs> <laughs> to to you know to uh, get information about the book to put in the book, and then uh, she uh, uh, said uh, I I asked her if she was interested in having these uh, archives of uh, James McDonald's UFO work uh, uh, put into the University of Arizona library. Oh, wow. You see. 
all of all of the work he'd done in climatology and meteorology for I think thirty years was uh was in the archives of the University of Arizona, but in the scientific archives, but they would not take the UFO archives because they did not consider them scientific. Oh wow. And and so um so I have a, a grant from the Fund for UFO Research, and we uh, got all of his archives into a what they call the, the uh, Special Collections section of the uh, University of Arizona at Tucson, uh, in the Personal Collections section of the library there. And they are available to, to uh, anyone who wants to come and read them or, you know, copy them. And uh, we're trying to get them online, but uh, right now the university is is still saying, well, no, we can't uh, do them uh, online, so that they're you know available to the public at large. The public has to come and uh, and uh, read them there. But people are uh, people in the UFO research field are going and studying and uh, writing things about McDonald now. Well, at least you have the opportunity to write this book, Firestorm, about his his works and his life. And I think that you were telling me that you wrote a screenplay about it as well. Uh, yes, I wrote a screenplay. In the, uh, I was writing screenplays before I started writing books in 1980. Oh, wow. And I had written a, a, a seven screenplays and sold one, which was never produced. Oh, no. <laughs> I got paid for it, you know. Right. And, and then I had I had the other ones, and one of them once about McDonald's. And then in 1992, uh, I, I uh, took out the screenplay that I had written about McDonald and uh, redid it uh, to, in other words, so that it, it now is almost precisely what uh, the uh, Firestorm book is like. Oh, great! It's, it's like it's like a docudrama, except there's slight hypotheses, you know, at the at the end as to how he died. And, and uh, I have a major producer interested in it. But this major producer is working on a, another UFO documentary now, and he hasn't yet gotten around to, uh, you know, for the production of the screenplay. As of so yet. What I need is screenplay agent. Yes, you do. <laughs> I had a long time ago, uh, he retired, you see. So if anybody out there knows a screenplay agent, <laughs> I would be most happy to. And how could they get in touch with you? Would they be able to do that on your website? Of course. I'd also want to touch base with you in regards to all the other books that you've written, which I think is really interesting. They're all so different, and but it's in a great way because it just it's interesting to me that a lot of people who are really interested in this uh, subject have also delved into other areas of the phenomenon, psychic awareness, uh, past lives, so, what was the first book that you wrote? It was uh, it, it's uh, called The Hunger Canyon Contacts, and it's just been republished for the the third time. Finally, uh, a couple of years ago, I I had uh, when I first entered the UFO research field in 1957, uh, all of, all of the cases we got, you know, from from the public, were uh, things that were seen in the sky or maybe hovered around a house 
or maybe we're seen landed afar, you see. And uh, there was almost no idea uh, mention of of the uh, uh, occupants. Uh, it, and uh, but in 1972, fine, uh, the uh, UFO research field suddenly began to change, and we re began to receive dozens and dozens of cases of so-called abductions. Hmm. And we we wondered about this. We were all scientifically oriented in, investigators, and some of us were scientists too. And not me, but I'm scientifically oriented. And uh, we we uh, wondered about this. And but uh, the the people who were reporting these so-called abductions by what they call physical aliens from physical UFOs. They were, um, um, uh, they were honest, productive uh, individuals, you see, mm -hmm. and that we accepted these cases like the cases uh, of the uh, craft seen in the sky, you see. Right. Uh, so um, I, I uh, by 1972, uh, this is when they... The, um, this phenomenon seemed to change in the UFO research field, although we still, you know, had the cases of the one seen in the sky. But um, there uh, were five cases that came to my attention, and I was, uh, you know, given the authority to investigate them into Hunga Canyon, which is a few miles northeast of uh, Los Angeles itself, and it's in in the uh, in the mountains. It's an isolated region where people live in small cabins and houses, and they're uh, they're the pe kind of people that just don't want to live in a city and be surrounded by other people. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. And in fact, yes. I, I used to live in Laurel Canyon, which is is very similar to that kind of community where people seem to separate themselves from the larger cities and just have a little bit more of a sanctuary. Yes, that that's a good way of expressing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> no, no problem. So, so then when you were studying, so I, I was I was given these cases to investigate, oh. and uh, I found out. That, uh, that the five uh, young young women, five, all young women, who were reporting these uh, so-called abduction experiences, were um, they uh, were they knew each other, or you know uh, they they would live together maybe, or just apart, and then another one would come with them, and there would be another type of abduction experience. Uh, but it all they all occurred uh, uh, around this Tahunga Canyon area. And but uh, as I studied and, and talked to them at length for five or six years, the I, I learned that uh, of the five young women who had described these abduction experiences, three of them reported being able to fend off or resist the creatures and get them to go away. You mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. And this was most curious to me, and I wrote several articles in the UFO journals about these five young women. And then a, uh, a wonderful parapsychologist called D. Scott Rogo became very interested in these uh, articles I was writing, and he approached me. He had written about 20 books himself at that time. Wow. I had written none. <laughs> he approached me, and he said... Um, Oh, would would you care to write a book with me about the Tahunga Canyon contacts? 
And I said, yes. Well, of course you did. <laughs> yes. And so we, uh, it took us about five years uh, uh, to, to write to write it, and he wrote, uh, we wrote separate chapters. My chapters were the ones about the uh, five uh, abduction experiences, or five abductees. Mm-hmm. His were, were um, it was about the parapsychological implications that he saw uh, in uh, in their experiences. Wow. Could we talk about that for a second, Anne? Because I, I've never really heard of anybody actually specifically writing about that aspect of, of the experience from a parapsychological viewpoint. So is there any way you can maybe just give us a little hint of what he thought about that? His writing was so scientific and so hard for me to understand that to this day <laughs> I have not really absorbed all these chapters, but uh, essentially he had an idea that the creatures that were being seen by uh, humans might be interdimensional. Mm -hmm. They did not appear to him to be physical aliens. Right. This was his theory. Right. And uh, it was an interesting theory, which later I, I... grew to accept myself uh, after studying the case, you know, other cases for five more years and writing how to defend yourself against alien abduction, mm-hmm. uh, which is, um, which was published in 1998. And, uh, it was, uh, it was based on the, uh, basically on, on the five, uh, young women experiences in Dahunga Canyon, especially the three who were able to fend off and resist the creatures. Mm-hmm. And so I studied, I studied about 70 abductees who told me that they were able to fend them off too. And we got a list of nine resistance techniques, which seemed to help uh, you know, a people who were strong-minded and who had a strong sense of their own right to privacy. Right. In other words, you know, no creature has a right to come into my bedroom or into my car and do things to me, you know. Right. Um, that that they didn't want done. And so um, I I studied this and I learned that uh, down through the millennia, in every culture in the entire country uh, and entire world, major and minor cultures, there have been harassing creatures mm. who behave like our, what we call uh, uh, abduct, you know, abductors from physical aliens, from physical craft. Right. Uh, but but uh, the these other cultures recognized that these were not appearing to them in space-time in physical space-time, but were appearing to them in an altered state of consciousness um, in in what we now call another dimension. Right. Of course, there are other dimensions around our world, you see. Oh, definitely, there are. And, and space-time. Uh-huh. Yes. I've actually been speaking with somebody about this quite recently because it seems that, I don't know if you've experienced this ever in your life, um, but... A friend of mine and myself um, and my boyfriend actually have recently been experiencing what's called a time slip. Ah. 
and almost as if the thing that you already are thinking about at present is happening a little bit later or, or you see something that happens and then it happens in real time, but you think it in your mind first and then all of a sudden it happens. Uh-huh. Or you read something and then a week later it actually sh- shows up in the paper, something like that. And, and so for me, I'm thinking, so it, it's seeming that there is some sort of uh, a time dimensional, maybe an overlap happening, or maybe we're just becoming more and more aware of it, the more consciously we become that they can be a reality. Uh, I, I believe it might have taken Americans uh, a couple of centuries to <laughs> accept this. Yes. Other cultures all over the world, you know, accepted the fact that there were other dimensions other than uh, what what we call our physical space time. Mm. But it took Americans a little uh, a little while. And uh, my my hypothesis in the book is that uh, these creatures they are shape shifting. They have oh. the ability to shape shift into various forms, wear different clothing according to the culture, you know, of the people that they are attacking. And uh, my hypothesis is that it might have taken this type of, of creature a little while to figure out how to frighten Americans. Mm. And that they finally got to the, the fact, well, well, if we appear as technologically superior aliens from physical UFOs, this will frighten Americans. <laughs> that's that's really interesting it because does. it does. And, and uh-huh. that brings up a really good point because... What in America itself? What is the one thing that our government fears, and that is losing control, losing power. Mm-hmm. So if there's something bigger than us, now they're not going to think about something bigger in a conscious way. They're going to think about something that's you know a material, tangible thing that would create fear, mm-hmm. and that would be in something that's technologically more advanced than us. I think that's the number one thing that that we would fear as a populace here in the States. Because once something uh, is bigger than our own government, per se, technologically, or bigger than our own Air Force, then that that is one of the biggest fears, I think, uh, physically, that we could actually think about consciously. Extremely well expressed. (laughs) Don't you agree? I mean, I'm thinking that that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying... In the Reader's Digest version of what you wrote. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm, I'm assuming that that's what you meant, but I'm, I'm guessing uh-huh. that, uh, you know, maybe that is very true because throughout time we've noticed in, you know, researching uh, ancient cultures and, and their histories and, and what the things that they did fear, like you said before, they might be appearing in, in different manners that might manifest in a way that would frighten them for that specific time period because obviously they couldn't, uh, rationalize what something in the sky would be, although we do see paintings from, you know, many cultures back, you know, hundreds of years ago where you will see something anomalous in the sky that appears to be a craft with an occupant in it. What do you, what do you make of that? I mean, do you think that maybe that's just a, their way of saying an angel in the sky or do you think that maybe they did see something up there that was more advanced technologically than them? Well, as I studied the uh, down through the millennia, uh, like uh, the um, the Muslim culture calls these creatures jinns, mm-hmm. uh, but they are a, an uh, an interdimensional form of creation that shares the world with us. You see, 
and according to the Quran, uh, there, uh, the uh, the angels were were created first, the first order of creation. Uh, the the humans were invented third, the third order of creation. But in between the angels and the uh, the humans, there the jinn, so-called jinns or al-jinn, were created uh, interdimensionally and given our earth to live on according to the Quran, but in in uh, other dimensions uh, around and under the earth, you see, and not in our physical space-time. Wow. But but they they share the, the world with us according to the Quran and according to all the other cultures that, that I that I studied. So um the uh they're called different names by different cultures like the the uh, Malaysians call them Boonians, and the Europeans call them the old hags. Uh, no, Newfoundland calls them the old hag syndrome, <laughs> and uh, in uh, various uh, European countries call them incubi, male and female. We're all quite aware of what those are. Uh huh. <laughs> and, and so, so many, uh, all of the uh, tribes. Uh, of uh, uh, of North America uh, have described these creatures to giving them different names, and um, so they they uh, most likely do exist. Uh, I uh, I'm sure they do exist. Uh, so what do you think they're here for? I mean, what, what is their purpose? Well, you see, uh, we can only hypothesize, but uh, if if you uh, the the um, the Quran is the only book that describes uh, how they were created and why and where God uh, permitted them to live, you see. And so uh, we have to accept the fact that the earth, uh, a certain dimensions of the earth were given to them to live in, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, my, my own speculation, this is speculation, when when the humans were invented and given the physical space-time to live in, uh, perhaps the jinn, the, uh, well, the jinns, if you want to call them that or whatever name you want to call them, um, perhaps they were jealous of humans right. and they didn't want us here. And that's why they started to harass us. This is mere speculation, mm, but yeah, I, you, I wonder, you know, mm. why that they harass. But, well, that could uh, be very well. I mean, obviously, it seems almost as though they're they're ban I don't say banished into another uh, dimension. That mm. that maybe they are a little bit jealous of the things that we do experience here, maybe in a physical sense, and and maybe that's why they appear to us to harass us and and make us as as uncomfortable in our own space as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think when you when I'm hearing you talk about this, the one thing that keeps popping up in the back of my mind is almost like poltergeist. To, to me, uh, I, I you know I've studied a, a lot about ghosts and things, but I'm not an expert on that. Uh, a poltergeist to me would be different uh, from from what we call um, uh, abduct abductors, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, or whatever you want to call them. Um, uh, it's it's different, a poltergeist. Uh, to me, it's it's possibly related to ghosts, mm -hmm. uh, which are uh, to me 
are uh, the uh, souls of human beings who have not been able to uh, to you know to zip into uh, the the uh, alternate uh, world which we call heaven. Right. Yes. And and they're stuck on earth. <laughs> Definitely. So I mean, I think well for myself, it's hard because I've had both in my life. So sometimes it's really hard to distinguish oh between my. the two. So yes, it's been a very interesting life so far. Um, ghosts and poltergeists. Yes. And well, and the, the you know the gray, many different types of beings as well. So for me, having all these appearances. It's, sometimes it's really hard to distinguish between the different realities of, of where they're coming from, what dimension they're appearing from, why they're appearing in my reality at this time. I've had uh, dead relatives and, and I've had friends who passed away come and say goodbye. I've, oh. Yes, and then I've had the abduction uh, scenario when I was a child up mm-hmm. through um, them visiting me up until even two years ago. And then I've had... Um, other beings, I've had a mantis being appear to me. I've had three little blue beings appear to me. And then I've also had a, uh, a female um, uh, presence come to me one night, which, which was probably the most benevolent experience that I've ever experienced in, in my abductions my oh whole my. life. Because it wasn't an abduction. It was more of a, more of a direct visitation. And um, I was given a direct message that was a very... Um, uh, very direct and, and very specific, but very uplifting and, and loving message. So, huh? yeah, I've had I've had a, quite a few different, um, you know, scenarios happen, and, and it is hard to try and keep your head together to think that you are sane. But I think that a lot of us who are involved in this phenomenon, and like you've been involved as well, and you've seen things in your life that seemed quite different than the norm, you did. Yeah sometimes question uh, what is real. And and I think that the more you open yourself up to the possibilities, the more you see, the more open you are, the more of these different realities such as synchronicities and, and, you know, psychic abilities and and maybe even the time slips that I was mentioning before might be more apparent because you're more aware of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, these uh, these appearances or, or events, are so different from dreams. I mean, they're so real that you know that that something did happen, although it might it probably wasn't in physical space time, but but in an alternate, you know, in an altered consciousness in an another dimension. Um, uh, I you know I've had uh, well three experiences now that uh, you know that that indicate that there are uh, things that come from other dimensions. But I, I wanted to indicate that the Quran uh, and all these other cultures say that these uh, the creatures, the harassing creatures, are the bad ones, that, that this form of creation are both good and bad, you mm-hmm. see. And they're not all bad. And uh, they're all capable of, 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 you know, bad things. But a lot of them never do that, and, uh, and we uh, these are called the the bad, uh, yeah, the Irish. Uh, they call them a fairy folk or she, s i d h e is spelled in Irish. She, uh, they're good and bad. You see, right? Good fairies, bad fairies. Well, I think there's good and bad in everything, and and if we have that here, on this earth, obviously. 
um, why would it not be apparent in other dimensional beings as well? I mean, even even with the 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 abduction, uh, the the grays that appear mostly in the abduction scenario, I uh, myself have had a visitation from both good and bad, and and there are certain people who I've actually spoken with who are abductees who only believe one way or the other. You know, they're all they're either all it's not like black and white. They're either all good or they're all bad. But I, I don't necessarily get that feeling at all. No, uh, if they if they read, you know, uh, books down through the ages, uh, even written by uh, philosophers and priests uh, as early as the you know the 16th century, uh, the the you will find they would find that the, these creatures are good and bad. Wow. So then, you know, speaking about your books and and how they are so different, um, I'm going to name a couple of the other books, and I know that you wrote. Um, a book called The Psychic and the Detective. Yes. And that is interesting as well because that was co-written by what, Armand Marcotte. Is that correct? Uh, Armand Marcotte. Right. And Mar- it, is, is that based on a true story? Oh, well, yes. You see, I, 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 uh, I got to, uh, to know uh, Armand Marcotte because I guess he had read some of my articles or something like that or maybe the Tahunga Canyon Context book. And he contacted me, and he wanted to find a co-author because he was a very well-known, remarkable clairvoyant who was used even by police departments in in the Southwest, in California, you know, secretly, of course, and and, and in the Midwest. And he he was uh, well-known. He was uh, so reliable, so wonderful man. And he wanted to write a book about some of his experiences he had had with uh, solving cases uh, of, you know, of um, a police, uh, a police cases that had not been solved. They had contacted him and said, you know, Armand, could you help us out with some information psychically that will help us solve this murder case? You see. Mm-hmm. And there are several cases that he had worked on uh, in the psychic and the detective. And I, I told him, well, sure, I'll co-author the book with you. And so um, we wrote three books together before he, uh, well, we had two and a half done before he died in 1999. Oh, my goodness. Psychic and the detective and the past lives, future growth. Mm-hmm. And then uh, standing in God's light in end times. Wow, that sounds the interesting. The latest that was that uh, that we wrote together, but I finished that one after he died, uh, you know, using the interviews that he had given me. Nine interviews he had given me for the book. We wow. had finished four chapters of it before he died, mm-hmm. and then I waited a few years, and all of a sudden I felt his presence, you know, let's get it finished, and <laughs> That's awesome. So, yes, so uh, I, uh, I I finished the last five uh, with him, feeling that he, he uh, you know, that it was his, his information from the interviews that he had given me. Wow, and well, we're going to have to wrap this up here. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. There's still so many questions I have for you, and so I, I hope that maybe someday we can uh, carry on this conversation and hopefully 
that will be when Firestorm is a huge major motion picture on the screen. <laughs> so maybe maybe this will be a conduit for you of sorts to uh, get this out there that you are looking for a screenplay agent. A screenplay agent who might help me sell uh, some of my other screenplays that I wrote in the 1970s, you see. And, and um, th they're good. I'm, I, course, I would love to read them. Oh, send them on over. Oh, well, all right. So thank you for joining us. And, and if you would like to get in touch with me, and if you have any questions for me, um, you may contact me at abductiawareness at gmail.com or visit my blog at abductiawareness.blogspot.com. Anne Druffle's contact information is andruffle.com. That's A-N-N-D-R-U-F-F-E-L.com. Uh -huh. So if you'd like to contact her, do that there. Read her books. If you need any help defending yourself against alien abduction, I highly recommend that book. I, I thought that was very interesting. Or if you have any questions for her, please contact her directly. Thank Wonderful. you again, Anne, and have a good night. See you next month at Random Alien Brain Dropping. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Anne. I love that name, Brain Dropping. Do you like that? <laughs> <laughs>